Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I have Charlie with me today, uh, who we've just decided that she has to call herself Charlotte professionally because Charlie White sounds like a 60s gangster or uh, cocaine. It's it's a tricky, tricky um, balance to pull that one, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that you don't look like a complete cokehead must help, though. It does help. It does help, especially, you know, being a chef definitely helps. So... Who have you brought with you today? I've brought a 17th century history friend. Surprise. <laughs> you know me, if you if you get me on here, I'm always going to be a massive 17th century nerd. So today I have brought with me Jonathan Healy. He's an associate professor in social history at Oxford University, working on poverty, economic development, popular political history and rural history covering the 15th to the 19th centuries. Of course, we all know the 17th is history's greatest century, so we'll be hanging out there. I first saw him speak at the rather fabulous Histfest back in 2018, I think it was, and I've followed him on Twitter where he's at Social History Ox ever since, and he's very kindly agreed to come and let me be a nerd with him. So hello, Jonathan. Hi, Charlie. How are you doing? It's really nice to really nice to be on here. And um, I'm always slightly cringy when someone reads out the, um, <laughs> uh, the thing on my website, which basically says I do all history from about 1400 to about 1900. <laughs> Everything. It's all mine. Um, whereas in fact, I actually do a teeny tiny part of that, almost entirely focused on the 17th century. So um, it, it is one of those cases of, uh, of, you know, how I present myself versus you know, it's kind of small thing that I actually do, um, but thank you. It's wonderful to be on, and uh, I remember that history, um, that Histfest uh, talk very, very well, actually. Yeah, it was really good. Histfest is fantastic for anyone who's big up Rebecca. Yeah, we we love Rebecca. She is just fantastic, <laughs> and it was such a great event. It was such a a lovely random association of um, of speakers, different eras, different topics, and you could just kind of wander around um, London and and hear talks when you could be in person. So, hopefully, that will be up and running again soon in real life. Uh, absolutely, um, but it's good because if you'd have mentioned the Tudors and gone closer to the fifteenth century, she may have just muted you and booted you out of the chat. <laughs> Charlie's on one woman mission to eradicate the Tudors from his <laughs> concern. She's like, we've all had enough; they can go away now. Oh, <laughs> mate, they are quite well known. I mean, they've 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 sort of had their time, really, haven't they? I mean, I I don't want to I don't want to irritate my colleagues, but um, uh, it, it, it's a bit boring. You don't want to irritate. No, my no, colleagues. no, I didn't mean that. I didn't but, mean that. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> hold my dream for bitches. <laughs> yeah. we, look, we, we love the Tudors, but it's time for the sequel, isn't it? Quite, We're ready. Yeah. <laughs> we're ready to move on with the franchise, which is what we're doing today. <laughs> well, I like to think of the Tudors as the prequel to the Stuarts rather than the, the Stuarts as the, the, the sequel to the, the, the Stuarts. Nice. That puts them more in Phantom Menace territory than yeah, you. Exactly. You <laughs> in like shallow <laughs> hell two territory. Yeah. Oh, no, we're, we're Empire and their uh, Attack of the Clones. I think is. The, <laughs> yeah. The well, I like that. That's everyone knows Empire's the best film. We'll have to check with well, Chris Sam's on that. It's not. No, it's Jedi. not. No, the best film is is Rogue One. And I'm not sure where that fits in with the um, uh, with the uh, with the um, uh, with with the English history, but um, it's kind of you know <laughs> we digress. Well, I, no, well, I love it. Be Rogue One because that's me, and then I feel included. <laughs> Let's ask some questions, Charlie. Go on then. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about today is, and you rightly pointed this out, Alex. Every time we talk about something 17th century, we always start with saying. Oh, and of course, we all know that the king had his head cut off, but we've never actually gone back and talked about why that happened. We've touched on the Civil War. We've never really talked about why that happened. So we thought it'd be a great opportunity because we've got John here with us today. Um, and we can actually talk about how this all got started and discuss the king's downfall. So the Civil War didn't come out of a vacuum. Fighting didn't just break out by accident in the summer of 1642. So John, where do we need to begin our story when we start talking about King Charles I and his parliament coming to blows? Uh, it's a great question. And, and the first thing to say is that as soon as you go down any road of trying to explain what happened in the middle of the 17th century, um, you are going to annoy people who have a different take. Um, so much so that even the name of the conflict is uh, is a contested one. Um, you know, some traditionally it was seen as the, the English Civil War uh, or, or, or even the Great Rebellion, if you didn't like what was going on. Um, and, uh, and, and then, of course, you know, many people pointed out that, well, actually, there's also stuff going on in Scotland and Ireland. So, so today we we think of things. We have names like the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, or my personal favourite, which is the uh, the Wars of the Atlantic Archipelago. Um, <laughs> I love the word archipelago, and and any opportunity to use it is is wonderful. Um, but it's not uh, going to so look good on a t-shirt, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Fit that on a badge. <laughs> so we can't. So we don't know what it's called. Um, so that's a bad start. Uh, and things get worse as soon as we start to think about what caused it or indeed what people were fighting for. I mean, the people at the time didn't really know what they were fighting for. I mean, they 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 knew what they were fighting for, but they didn't know what everyone else was fighting for. And so you get someone like Thomas Fairfax, who uh, was a parliamentarian general. He he was shown a copy of Magna Carta and sort of said, ah, this is what we were fighting for. This was very, very important. Um, and then you got Oliver Cromwell, who sort of said, well, you know, it wasn't really about religion. And then Thomas Hobbes, who says, actually, it was about religion. Um, and so, you know, even at the time, it was an incredibly complicated question. Historians haven't helped the situation. I think if you put um, two 17th century uh, specialists in a telephone box and said, I'm only letting you out of this telephone box. And in fact, I'm going to put a fart bomb in there. Uh, <laughs> I'm only letting you out of this telephone box. If you can sort out why the Civil War happened, they would come to blows. Um, it's like the old Dennis Wise thing about starting a fight in a, in a telephone box. Um, you, they would come to blows and they would come up with four different interpretations and, and, and none of them would be able to agree on any of that. All of that is to say, 
I don't know. However, <laughs> however, <laughs> although I don't know. <laughs> which Episode ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm off now. We're going to make a cup of tea. Um, uh, however, I would like to suggest um, that there are some things that, uh, that, that we can say were important. Um, and I'm going to highlight three. Um, uh, and, and what I normally do when I'm teaching is now, I'm going to highlight three and then halfway through, I'm like, actually, no, I'm going to do four. Uh, and then it's like, <laughs> Maybe I'll do five, but I, I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick to three, and if not, you can you can mute me. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the first is the first is religion, and I think this is the thing that perhaps is most alien to us. Um, we are uh, perhaps not as well. I, I don't want to be controversial, but I don't think we're quite as religious a society as they were in 17th century England. Um, not to be controversial, um, and and the, the big question is what kind of Protestantism England's going to embrace. Um, is it going to be a sort of um, very kind of ceremonial kind of Protestantism with lots of um, uh, lots of bowing and and lots of um, you know lots of ceremony and 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 lots of hierarchy and lots of images and things like that, um, or is it going to be a much more sort of homely one um, where the focus is on listening to sermons? So uh, so the first of those is the sort of let's it's the sort of royalist one basically um and the second of those is the sort of parliamentarian one um and it seems like quite sort of those seem like quite sort of pedantic distinctions really um but people at the time saw them as as incredibly important um and uh, and and so there's kind of two different cultures of the church and it's it's one of these things where you know how today if you get two people who kind of broadly agree about something and then you put them on social media and then <laughs> gradually their positions get crystallized into opposite um opposite poles and and by the end they're sort of you know yelling at each other telling each other to uh, you know uh, um to, to to leave in no uncertain terms uh, it was a bit <laughs> like that <laughs> where you get basically everyone's a protestant but because they're all arguing with each other in the press um, they end up um, basically taking these kind of quite strong um, polar opposite positions with one side calling the other Puritans and the other side calling the other Papists. So so that's bad. So that's one thing. That's religion. Um, and, and I think that's really, really important. It's a bit distant to the way we think about things, um, but that's fine. I think the 17th century, what I like about it is it's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Um, the second is constitutional uh, issues. And, and where this comes from, really, is that in the 17th century, um, lots of uh, states are finding it very, very hard to pay for themselves. Um, and there's lots of very, very kind of deep rooted reasons for this. The most fundamental is that there's lots of inflation. So tax is basically worth less than it was 100 years before. And while at the same time, um, warfare, which is, of course, the main thing that governments do in this period, is becoming more expensive. And that's because of things like gunpowder weapons and larger armies and, and, and what have you, all that kind of all that kind of military stuff. Um, <laughs> he says, sound is very, very scary historian. Military historian um, in the room fringes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's fine um and so what that means is that um is that charles um when he wants to raise money for his for his government he's forced to do it in ways that basically basically piss people off um because he um it, because he has to um he has to go without he has to use things other than parliament to raise money um so by the by the late 1630s charles has been um ruling without parliament for a while because parliament got a bit kind of 
got a bit aggy with him over <laughs> all kinds of other things in the 1620s but he's still trying to raise money and that and that means that he's in this position where um he's just about getting by um but if anything kicks off then he's going to be in a lot of trouble and then of course he he makes the mistake of picking a fight with with the scots and that's my third factor um which is the diff the difficulties of ruling three very very different places england scotland and ireland um, and Charles quite likes to sort of order things and put things together um, and, and make sure everything is um, is is the same everywhere, which is a very, very bad idea. His father, James, was quite happy to, well, broadly happy to just sort of go, yeah, do you know what? I know Scotland is a bit different. I'm just going to let them get on with it. Um, Charles doesn't do that. He wants to impose his own prayer book on Scotland. And that ends up with Scotland um, kicking off into a massive, massive rebellion and eventually invading England in 1640. And of course, Charles has got no money to pay for it. So he's forced to go back to Parliament. Are you following? There will be a test. <laughs> I've genuinely been making notes. Good. Oh, notes. oh, brilliant, brilliant. Totally, totally following. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Charles is, is trying to raise money. One of the um, the sort of more controversial things he does to raise money is ship money. Is this this time? Is this yes, around is. Yeah, this yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, uh, so Charles, uh, one of the things that Charles is quite keen on is um, getting control of the channel and, um, um, and making sure that the English fishermen have 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 uh, lots of places. To fish. Now, where have we heard that before? Um, Never and, heard that before. <laughs> who could possibly imagine a government being so silly as to do that? Um, and uh, and in order to do that, he needs a big fleet. Um, and so, uh, ship money is an attempt to um, to pay for that fleet. Um, it, it's actually pretty successful. It's a it's a bit of a myth that it's um, it's a complete failure. Um, but what happens is that he extends it to inland counties traditionally it was only levied on coastal counties he extends it to inland counties and they of course don't want to pay um and and you get places like york saying um you want us to send you a ship have you looked at a map do you know where we are <laughs> we're not near the coast we, we we can't do that but um but i mean essentially i mean ship money is is successful actually um it raises quite a lot of money it's only when um charles then picks his fight with the scots with the Scots Covenant, as they're called, um, that people stop paying ship money and they, they, they sort of start saying, well, actually, do you know what? Um, let's uh, let's leave this off. Um, and he's helped by the fact that he's able to win a, a, a famous lawsuit. I mean, I, I'm quite I'm sort of quite amused about this idea that the king is forced to sue people in his law courts in order to get something get something done. You know, you don't sort of imagine you know um a great tyrant having to having to sort of get lawyers to to argue your case in the law courts but but he doesn't but he's successful ship money is kind of you know it, it is considered legal but it is very very controversial and it's one of the first things parliament gets rid of um when they uh when the scots invade and, and charles is forced to call another parliament that's in 1640 i think this this question charlie has written this question she's the queen of the understatement parliament <laughs> have expressed well, that means that some concern <laughs> about those around the king he may have been getting some bad advice <laughs> who were these evil counsellors in inverted commas <laughs> <laughs> well there's um there's there's really kind of two big ones um and and these these guys basically become sort of hot hot potatoes if that's the right phrase um and the first is uh, is the archbishop of canterbury uh, william lord um and we talked about how religion was a big dividing factor and and lord is um well he's <laughs> again i'm gonna i'm gonna annoy my colleagues here um lord is a sort of classic <laughs> 
classic stuffy Oxford Don who just annoys everyone. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we, we all know them. Um, and, um, and he's had a sort of long career out of annoying people. Uh, and, and in the, in the 1930s, in the 1630s, you see what happens when you, I'm, I'm in a room with a modern historian. I start saying things like the 1930s. Confusing as stuff. As if that's history. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, anyway, so he spent the 1630s basically annoying um, the other side of the religious debate. Um, and um, he's, he's quite old. Uh, by this point so um one of the main things that parliament wants to do is they want to get rid of him because he's he represents a very different tradition in the church to um to the one that most of them their members support um the other is a guy called thomas wentworth um who is a sort of uh, a, a stocky curly-haired yorkshireman who again is someone who just has a lot of difficulty making friends um he's spent mo most of the 1630s uh, um managing ireland um but also he's a sort of um the king's fixer, if you like. Um, and one of the things that's really, really bothersome about Wentworth or the Earl of Strafford as he becomes um, is that he's got a pretty good idea that some in, in late 1640, that some of the leading parliamentarian um, members of the leading uh, members of the opposition in Parliament um, have been in collusion with the Scots. Um, again, that's a sort of very modern sounding thing, isn't it? <laughs> collusion with the foreign power, isn't it? Um, but he is pretty convinced that he knows that some of the leading figures in the parliamentarians um, uh, have been in collusion with the Scots. So people like John Pym, who I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, and so that's and, and so with that in mind, they are desperate to get him out of the picture because he's very, very dangerous. Um, and so what happens is they have him arrested in Parliament very dramatically and uh, very early on uh, when Parliament sits uh, in November 1640. And then in the spring of 1641, he's he's put on trial. Um, and that trial is an it's a massive kind of well, I mean, it, it, it's in many ways, it's a massive cock up because what what they try and do is they try and say, OK, we'll admit that it's quite hard to get you for treason, but we're basically just going to add up all these annoying things that you've done um, and say that cumulatively that is treason, because what it does is it annoys people about the king. I mean, it's a it's a bonkers argument, really. Um, and Strafford knows it. Um, so it doesn't get anywhere. So instead, what they have to do is they have to use something called a, a bill of attainder, which I mean, it's which is pretty nasty. Basically, Parliament legislates and says you're guilty of treason. I mean, can you imagine that? They just yeah. sort of say, right, the, the Commons says, right, you're guilty of treason. Sorry. Um, the Lord says, yep, fine, whatever. And then eventually the king signs off on it. And then and you yeah, can die now. It was. Very yeah. <laughs> yeah and you you're dead now yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it. that's it but of course i mean but the, the reason one of the reasons it becomes so um such a sort of controversial thing though is that you can imagine charles was pretty pretty reluctant to sign away sign off the head of his main uh, of his main henchman um and so he doesn't want to do it but what the um the parliamentarians do is they use the the crowd in london and of course the crowd is able to think for itself of course as well um and so you get these kind of big uh, demonstrations in london and charles is very very scared for the um for his family and for his own safety and that means that he is um he basically signs strafford's death warrant so it's kind of you know it, it it's um uh, it, it's a great exercise in popular uh, in popular protest if you like um but it really does kind of push people into um opposing camps in 1641 Gosh, and he did do everything he could to save Stratford. Um, I read that he sent the Prince of Wales into the Commons to 
to ask for Stratford's life and to ask them to back off. And he was about 10 at the time. So it was sort of this last ditch attempt of sending, I'm going to send my cute 10 year old heir to try and get them to back off. Yeah. And, but I mean, he does, he does try and he's very, very, uh, there's a story where he gets, he gets um, visited by Stratford's ghost. (laughs) So so kind of like, you know, he's so cut up about what had happened. Um, But eventually he just doesn't have a choice. You know, he's faced with um, a very, very powerful popular protest in London. He, he still has to pay for Parliament because otherwise the Scots will um, will march south. So he's still he's, he's absolutely stuck at this point. And that's the case throughout the first year of, of, of what eventually becomes called the Long Parliament. Charles basically doesn't have much um, that he can do. He has to go with the flow. He has to, um, you know, declare ship money to be illegal. He ha- you have to say ship money really carefully, don't you? Um, you have to, <laughs> he has to declare it to be illegal. Not um, on History Hack, it's fine. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> with a smutty podcast, it's great. Oh, I see. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, I didn't realise this was the kind of thing I was letting myself in for. There wasn't um, that in the T's and C's. <laughs> so yeah so he's i mean so he's absolutely stuck and and um and and that means that he, you know he has to basically do things that he really doesn't want want to do there's another evil advisor um <laughs> inverted commas who parliament had a problem with who charles is perhaps even even less able to do anything about and that's his wife yeah um Often, uh, often misunderstood, actually. Um, but um, but yeah, Queen Henrietta Maria was um, a, a pretty intelligent, pretty canny operator. Um, but of course, she was she was Catholic. Um, and and you know, when you've got a, a world where there is this religious debate and the the, the kind of temperature is ri- has risen so much that one side is calling the other Puritans and the other side is calling the other Catholics, um, any kind of obvious Catholicism at court is is a bit is a bit of a bother. Um, and and you know, some of the parliamentarians are absolutely mad when it comes to Catholics. And there's there's a real kind of anti-Catholic bigotry uh, in some of them. There's there's one. Um, there's one guy called Sir John Clotworthy. Um, he's an utter bigger. I mean, I can't, I, I can't, I, you know, I can't, I can't stand him. He's Sounds like a Dickens name, doesn't it? It does, not it? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's 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 Irish. Um, and and one of the things he suggests is this, that all Jesuits in England should be castrated. Um, and this seems uh, reasonable. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's just mad. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, it causes laughter in the House of Commons. Um, there's, I mean, there's another moment where um, where the uh, allegedly, I mean, we're kind of getting this second hand, but allegedly um, John Pym, who is the sort of leader of the parliamentarian um, side in Parliament, um, he suggests that Catholics should be forced to wear badges. Again, it's, there's there's laughter in the House and they think this is just stupid. Um, but these kind of ideas are out there. Um, and, uh, and you know, there's a sort of, there's a really kind of sharp edge to to a lot of um, parliamentarian. It's not, it's, it's not just about, you know, fighting for democracy. There's a real kind of anti Catholic bigotry, um, which is a major driving force there um, at the time. Gosh, and that, that doesn't go away anytime soon. No. Um, what can what can Parliament actually do about <laughs> about the King and these evil advisors and and the personal rule and everything? Can they can they actually do anything about it? Can they give the King a piece of their mind? <laughs> well, they do, um, and I think one of the uh, one of the big stories, basically, as um, uh, as sixteen forty one progresses, 
um, is that the parliamentarians kind of push things a little bit too far. Um, and there are people who see the Stratford trial and, and think, well, actually, do you know what? I signed up for a bit of moderate reform, um, a bit of, uh, you know, let's let's pull that Lord fella down. He's a pain. Um, Stratford, I don't particularly like. What I didn't sign up for is all these horrible Londoners running around um, <laughs> chanting and having political opinions. This is appalling. Um, and then in um, late summer, um, Parliament has to go into recess because there's there's plague in London. And one of the last things they do is they 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 pass this um, this um, declaration, uh, which basically says that all of the innovations in the church by by Lord um, can be taken down in the parishes. And what people do in the across the country, especially in London, is they take this as an opportunity to go into churches and smash things like stained glass window, um, smash things like altar rails, um, all that kind of thing. And it's all very unruly. It's all very kind of um, it's all very disorderly. And you, you sort of imagine these kind of, um, you know, relatively socially conservative MPs who've come from deepest, darkest Dorset. I don't know why I'm picking on Dorset, but I'm going to pick <laughs> on Dorset. Um, and they've ended up in Westminster where they're suddenly in this kind of town, which is full of um, full of protesting, petitioning um, poor people who we can all read. And at the same time, there's all these kind of um, what they call mechanic preachers, um, which is uh, which is not Pimlico plumbers sort of going around and um, and, and giving off ser but sermons, but it's actually not that far away. <laughs> um, it's, it's basically kind of, people who are um you know in, in trades um taking it upon themselves to just sort of stand on a tub and and preach uh, and give sermons and, and londoners they lap this kind of stuff up they think it's great um uh, but if you're a sort of you know if you're that kind of huffy um gentleman from dorset i don't know again why i'm picking on dorset poor dorset um, I think I yeah <laughs> to be fair zach's from dorset uh, this is a disclaimer no, no dorset <laughs> people were harmed in the making of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you're sort of looking at that and you're thinking, this is absolutely not what I signed up for. I, I signed up for moderate reforms, not Pimlico plumbers standing on a barrel and shouting to me about the end times. That's that's definitely not what I'm, what I'm in for. So by the end of 1641, um, Charles is able to tap into this um, kind of social conservatism and build a royalist party. So if you look at Parliament in at the start in 1640 at the end of 1640 almost everyone is kind of a reformist they want reform by the end of 1641 it's a split down the middle um and worse the house of lords who even more socially even more of them are from dorset um, <laughs> are, they, they, they are um even more socially conservative um and they are blocking um parliament uh, they're blocking legislation coming out of the commons so if you're on the on the you know, on the reformist side, if you're John Pym, who we keep mentioning, but we haven't actually spoken to, uh, uh, spoken about. Um, if you're John Pym, then you're, you're, you know, you're passing things in the Commons, but they're getting stuck in the Lords. Um, so increasingly towards the end of 1641, um, there is a blockage. There are royalists and they are getting in the way. It's very annoying of them. You know, we're trying to have good reforms here and the royalists are telling us that, that no, because, because, you know, because it's socially disorderly and, and, and all that kind of thing. So by the end of 1641, there's a bit of an, uh, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a blockage. Um, again, call out Pimlico plumbers and they'll sort out your blockage. Um, in this case, they've helped cause the blockage. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this metaphor. I think I'm going to leave it there and move on. No, no, I think, I think that's good. It's like, it's like um, social media, isn't it? I came here for yeah. the cat videos and now I've got some, you know, conspiracy theory that we're all getting microchips put in, you know, all these, uh, Crazy Pimlico plumbers, loving it. So everything is is a complete, complete state. <laughs> it is. 
Um, but can Charles, Charles, let me say that again. It is, <laughs> but can Charles beat his parliament at their own game? Did he have a voice in the Commons? Yeah, so by the end of 1641, um, things are pretty much split down the middle. Um, and so basically um, what what we're kind of spoiling for is a big fight, a big, a big split. Um, and um, in the winter of 1641 to 1642, um, which someone at the time described as the maddest Christmas that I've ever heard, uh, that I've ever, <laughs> that I've ever seen, um, uh, the all, all hell break, basically breaks loose. And, and I think, you know, one thing, one slightly serious historical point, I'm going to make a serious historical point. Um, we, we talk about the English revolution or the, the wars of the three kings or whatever. And if, you, if someone talks to you about the revolution, they normally mean the regicide. Which is what eventually happens. I know we, we had a spoiler. Spoiler. Earlier. Yeah, spoiler. So you said it at the very start. You said Charles. <laughs> oh, um, anyway, uh, so <laughs> so we spoiler alert. He gets his head cut off. Um, it doesn't grow back. Um, and, the Apple um, podcast stats are going to show everybody switching off at this exact point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, screw Maybe that and ruin it. Who knows? Maybe he'll just have done snow. It's worse than oh, light of beauty. Yeah. um so um i haven't seen the fight i haven't seen the end of line of duty so don't give me any any, um any uh, spoilers although i did go into the supermarket and literally the the ending was on the front page of the sun so (laughs) so that's rude anyway um i digress somewhat um and um so uh, so basically they kind of get this kind of massive crisis at the end of 1641 and 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 both sides are sort of playing for um control of parliament control of london um the context though is that things have got dramatically worse uh, because there's a huge rebellion in ireland um and yeah, ireland has been ruled as a, a basically as a colony um for, for for god knows how long i should know as a historian no but it depends on how you find it obviously. <laughs> I'm making lots and lots of years that Dorman's really angry about it. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Um, and and then so in 1641, there's a big rebellion in Ireland, and and what that means is that someone, uh, or they believe in England, that someone has to raise an army to go and put down the re- rebellion in Ireland. And both sides, parliamentarians and royalists, at this uh, at this stage, don't trust the other to control an army. Um, the other, the other thing to say at this point is that the Scots have gone home. So Charles is in a stronger position um, at the end of 1641. And it's all basically going to come down to this question of who controls London and who controls Parliament. Um, and so Charles in, in that winter makes a big play uh, to, control, uh, to control Parliament. And the first thing he does well, it's not the first thing. One of the first things he does is he has a big procession into London, um, which is um, which kind of shows, you know, look at me, I'm the king, um, and lots of Londoners go and support him. And then, quite soon after that, um, he passes a uh, he, he he gives a royal order which says all MPs must come to Parliament. Now that seems like a weird thing to to that things like a, feels like a weird thing to do, but if you think about it, lots of Conservative MPs have gone home and not come back. So what he's basically saying is he wants all the Conservative MPs to come back into Parliament. So then you'll have a majority in both the, uh, the, the, um, the Commons and the Lords. Um, and then that's when things start to really kind of kick off because um, the opposition, you know, Pim's lot, um, starts to think, well, you know, what can, what can we do about this then? We're, we're, in, a bit of a, we're in a bit of a situation here. Um, what can we do about it? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. 
Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes, oh, you so. want me to explain what they did about it? Okay, fine. Yes, no, I yeah, no, I, I want to know. <laughs> I thought I'd leave that as a little, as a little, as a, a little. What uh, did they do about it? Thank you. <laughs> I was listening well, so intently. I wasn't even thinking about asking questions. Well, what they did was they appealed to the people. Um, and so uh, so a few weeks earlier, they passed this thing called the Grand Remonstrance, uh, which was basically a big litany of all the bad stuff that Charles had done and what they thought that he should do about it. Um, and uh, they initially Parliament had said that they, we, we won't actually print it. But then they just wrote up manuscript copies and dished them out. Anyway, it's a bit weird. Um, but then they uh, but in December, they, they printed it. Um, so it's an attempt to appeal to the people. Um, and, uh, and you know, it kind of, it, in a way, it was sort of confirming all the biggest fears that, um, that Parliament, that, sorry, that the Conservatives had. Um, but they realised that the big issue was that the, um, in order to get anything done, in order to get control of the situation, and particularly to get an act passed which gave them control of the army, um, they needed to get control of the Lords. And what was blocking them, um, the blockage in the Lords, we've got more, we've got more blockage in. <laughs> Need uh, a Pimlico um, plumber. Well, we do, yes. Um, uh, the blockage in the Lords was uh, jo <laughs> John Pimlico plumber. So I just realised an awful pun. I'm going to, you'll have to edit that bit out because it's terrible. Um, a, a, an abomination against <laughs> I the I may. <laughs> <laughs> but they realised that what's blocking them is the is the bishops um and the the catholics there's still catholic lords in in the house of Commons. In, sorry in the house of lords um and so at the end of december um there are big big crowds coming out in london basically kind of hassling the bishops as they try and go into the house of lords um and you know haranguing um all the the catholics who are kind of going through in their in their coaches and there's big big popular demonstrations um charles makes the situation worse um by trying to put one of his um uh, one of his most loyal supporters, who's also a complete, um, a complete nut job, uh, in charge of the uh, in charge of the Tower of London. He's a man called Thomas Lunsford. He's from Sussex, so we've offended Dorset. So let's offend Sussex now. Yeah, Lunsford is a man who um, has uh, a conviction for homicide, I think. Um, he's quite happy for people to think he's a cannibal. Um, <laughs> and and in, during the war against Scotland, he'd shot um, deserters with his own 
with his own hands. He's a complete, I mean, you know, just a, a very, very, a very, very bad man. Sounds um, like a thug. A thug. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, yeah, a thug, a, a hooligan. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the, yeah, um, the kind of person one sees on the terraces at West Ham. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can definitely insult them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, so Charles tries to put him as the um, uh, lieutenant of the, of the Tower of London, which is a which is a, a very very big dangerous provocation because he's got loads of guns there. Um, but there's massive, massive demonstrations. Eventually, Charles backs down. Um, but in the course of those demonstrations, um, the bishops basically lose it. Um, and um, and one of them, uh, or, well, one of them then writes a, a kind of a petition, if you like, which is then signed by a load, of, a load of other ones, which basically says that Parliament is not free anymore because of all these demonstrations. Because demonstrations have been going on outside Parliament. Parliament is not real. It doesn't count. Um, um, best of three, I guess, is what they're sort of saying. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and so anything that Parliament has done in that, around about that Christmas is invalid. Uh, and what this does is it means that the Lords, who take this as a great offence, they, they, just, they just get really huffy about it, um, kick out the bishops and the bishops are sent to the Tower of London. So you get at the end of December a massive, um, a massive swing in Parliament where you've gone from a situation where Pym and his lot can't get anything done um, because of the bishops in the in the House of Lords to a situation where because of those popular um, demonstrations, they've got control of both the, the, the Commons and the Lords. Um, so now the scene is set um, for for Charles to, to really kind of kick things off. Um, but in Charles's defence and, and, you know, Many of you will know what he did next. Um, in his defence, he's been suddenly put in this very, very difficult situation. So he has to raise the temperature a little bit. He has to have a go at getting control back, um, take back control. <laughs> we, love a three, we love a three-word slogan here. Um, yes, I think it, it is time that we need to talk about um, about Mr Pym, who we've, uh, we've touched upon several times. Um, it's very easy to think from caricatures of this particular era, that it's King Charles versus he who shall not be named <laughs> in a battle grudge match to the death. Um, Protector Palpatine, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cromwell, Cromwell's not a key player at this time. Who is? Who, who are our key players in Parliament? Yeah, well, I mean, Cromwell's a, a bit of a non-entity at this point. I mean, he, he does pop up, but no one pays him much attention. But, uh, apart from this sort of royalist who rather sniffily uh, remembers many years later that he gave this kind of crap speech in which he, he had blood on his collar because he um, because he cut himself shaving. I think the idea was... Loser. Yeah, this kind of Indian <laughs> ruffian, basically. Um, they, they they didn't have much time for, for for Cromwell, but he's just not very important at this point. Um, he he's you know a minor minor figure until much later. Um, the key player really is John Pym, um, who is uh, a, a notably humorless MP. Um, he's he's ne we have lots of historical records about John Pym, but I don't think there's any single record of him ever enjoying himself. Um, he, he's a sort of blackadder Puritan, basically, who, given half the chance, would be sat in the House of Commons on a spike. Um, <laughs> he's, um, he's also um, vehemently anti Catholic, um, uh, uh, um, but also a man with an extremely nerdy understanding of parliamentary procedure and someone who um, knows that the really important thing to do in Parliament is to make sure that you're on good terms with the Speaker. Um, so he, he's, he's quite a canny operator, um, but he's at this point he's sort of driving the, the reformist agenda um, so much that 
um, people call him King Pim, um, which, which is a bit of an insult because, you know, he, they, they think that he's kind of, you know, trying to take the kingship, um, which is which is fair enough. Um, there's also an, a, a load of other key players in, in Parliament. Um, two of the crucial ones are, are John Hampton. Um, he's the person who ended up getting sued by the king over ship money. Um, so he's a bit of a hero of the parliamentarian side. Uh, and uh, a guy called Denzel Hollis, who is actually a socially conservative MP from Dorset. So he's he is. Time, um, <laughs> with, 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 with when we're talking about when we're being read about people from Dorset. But at this point, he's um, well, he's like a sort of classic radical, really, in that he um, he starts off as very radical and then gets older and gets much more, more conservative, particularly as there's the, everyone else becomes more radical around him. But at this stage, he's he's very much on the sort of on the radical side. Um, there's, uh, there's there are various others um, uh, and eventually. Eventually, um, what Charles decides to do um, is he decides to um, launch uh, treason accusations against five MPs, um, Pym, uh, Hampton, you see, this is where I have to remember them all, and, it's, and I always get them wrong. Pym, Hampton, um, and Hollis are the three key ones. Uh, he also goes after um, two guys called Arthur Hazelrig uh, and William um, uh, William Stroud, William Strood, um, I think that's how you pronounce it, who are slightly more obscure, but are just basically people who have pissed Charles off at one various point, quite sort of vindictive. Um, and he also has a go at one of the lords, um, a guy called uh, uh, Montague, uh, later the Earl of Manchester. Um, and Manchester, or Montague at this time, um, is a very canny operator. Um, but importantly, he's got this house in Chelsea, um, where all the parliamentarians are meeting and, and plotting. So, so, so Charles decides to try and decapitate the opposition not literally well eventually literally i suppose but for the time being not literally um so he launches um uh he launches uh, treason accusations against them and he does it in the uh, he does it in in the in parliament um on the 3rd of january um and um the the idea is is a to kind of get these people out of the picture but also to slow things down in the in in parliament to tie them up in in knots dealing with this case well eventually all those conservative mps will will start uh, will start coming back um but then <coughs> for some reason he decides to change tack um on the fourth um now the context here is that throughout that winter while there's all these demonstrations going on in London Charles has been gathering soldiers in Whitehall um, so Whitehall is now basically a kind of big barracks um, Whitehall is a it's a it's a palace at this point it's it's a bit more than um, than, than, than you know the sort of um, vaguely kind of dull buildings that you get now but the area basically around the banqueting hall is is where is where um, the main one of the main royal palaces in uh, are and and throughout the winter of 1641 Charles has been gathering these soldiers they're called cavaliers um which is important because of course you know stuff um so uh, <laughs> and so he's got all these cavaliers around him um and at some point on the 4th of January and it's at some point in the afternoon probably possibly after he's received a massive bollocking from the queen for basically <laughs> being a bit of a wet flannel um he decides that he's going to get a load of soldiers and he's going to march down to parliament uh, and he's going to arrest the mps in person um, because they're currently kind of faffing around and, and and no one has bothered to arrest them um, and so that's what he does and it's all a bit of a debacle really to start off with i mean he he, he comes out of whitehall um he 
um, as far as we know, I mean, sources are a little bit kind of, you know, this is a long time ago. We don't quite know exactly what happens. <laughs> but it seems like what happens is he basically kind of hailed, a, not he, he kind of flagged down a coach. There was some, some, poor, some poor noble or some poor, poor gentle person <laughs> was kind of trotting along in a coach. And then suddenly you get this kind of, you know, um, long haired um, king, probably in high heels, coming up to you, sort of, you know, tapping your window with a cane. And saying, Excuse me, sir. Um, can you this is like the ubiquitous that? scene in a Hollywood movie where yeah, some yeah, poor absolutely. New York cabbie of an ethnic minority gets dragged <laughs> into the plot line. So he gets in this coach and then he sort of trundles slowly down what's now Whitehall at the pace of a snail. Um, meanwhile, this lookout that the French ambassador of the French ambassador has run down through these crowds, <laughs> weaving in between these crowds, and has managed to get into Parliament and say, uh, "Guys, um, <laughs> you might want to know what's going on." Um, and so what happens is the, um, the the five MPs basically leave the the, the House of Commons and and um, uh, and kind of hide in the building. One of them, Strood, Strode, Stroud, Strood. Let's say Strood. Uh, yeah, he's a bit of a Devon wide boy, and he's he actually wants to stay and fight, um, but he's eventually <laughs> kind of pulled away. So um, no, I mean, come on. <laughs> um, so so he's kind of pulled away, and they and they eventually kind of end up getting on boats, um, but. Um, so Charles goes into the house. He leaves. Um, he leaves. He's got about five hundred soldiers with him. He leaves most of them out in the in the yard, um, and uh, he takes about eighty of them. And they sort of wait in the lobby, and they kind of they're kind of peering through the door, going, "Look at my sword, you know. Um, look at my pistol. Look, it's cocked." <laughs> um, while Charles goes <laughs> into the house with um, uh, with his nephew uh, um, uh, Charles um, Louis. Elector Palatine and and says right folks um uh wh where's the five MPs can I have them please um and the speaker <coughs> who's a guy called William Lenthal who's a, a bit of a drip to be honest but suddenly finds this kind of stirring moment of defiance um basically says I can't uh, I, I if I have eyes then I, I only have the eyes of the house and, and I can't um, hand over these these men so Charles gets increasingly cross and sort of you know uh, and he says well I can I can see the birds have flown and then sort of walks out and um uh, and swears and um and and um and goes away um and uh, this i mean it's sort of <laughs> sort of quite comical in some ways um but if you think about it from the perspective of those mps in the house of commons they think the whole situation is going to get very scarface very quickly um because they can see outside these heavily tooled up cavaliers um and and they think there's going to be a massacre so they are terrified um and as a result they basically um uh, eventually adjourn the house of commons for a week uh, and they re-meet in the city of london but charles by this point realizes that the the, the five members have gone uh, and have hidden away and they've gone they've gone down the thames into the city um and so the next day he goes into um he goes into the city um and addresses the common council um, and then he's again surrounded by um, protests. He's surrounded by angry citizens, all shouting privileges of Parliament. Uh, they had great chants back then. Privileges <laughs> of Parliament. Um, and at one point he's sort of trundling along in his coach again. And, um, and this ironmonger um, throws a pamphlet into his coach, which basically has loads of biblical quotations saying, to your tents, O Israel. It's a sort of it's a reference to um, deposing kings and... Um, uh, and um, you know armed resistance to monarchs. So Charles gets very very frightened by the whole thing, um, goes back to Whitehall, and then within within a few days he decides to leave London, um, goes down to Hampton Court, and eventually down to Windsor, and then up to York. Um, so it's a crucial moment because Charles 
basically gives up on his capital. And, and you know, I said a few, I said um, a few minutes ago, the winter sees a battle between both sides to try and get control of the, the of, the, of Parliament and control of um, London, uh, and eventually Charles bottles it and and ends up leaving. So you've got kind of two armed camps. The other interesting Thursday, hasn't he? Yeah, no, no, definitely. And the other interesting thing is that, that in this in these kind of um tumults as they're called, is a great word, tumults. Um the you, you talk about Charles with his cavaliers. The other the other insult which gets thrown around at this point um is roundhead. Um, because the um, the, lots of the London crowds are apprentices uh, and they tend to, and apprentices tend to have short hair and lots of them are also Puritans and Puritans tend to have short hair at this point. Um, So the the insult roundhead gets used and you get um, these two sides kind of basically firing insults against each other. So it's a critical moment in that split between two sides. Sovereign and Parliament still commemorate this, do they? Um, so there, there is the theory that the whole thing with the black with sorry it's not yeah. the black, it's black rod isn't it where he bangs on the door and <laughs> slam it in his face um, it's supposed to be a reference to, to to this although it's quite hard to actually uh, to actually prove that's the origins um, but yeah I mean it's one of these things where the myth the myth is kind of cool so let's leave let's let's keep the myth I like let's myth. do it uh, yeah it's supposed to commemorate this we're only um, historians we're only the guardians of exactly. hey, never you? let the truth get in the way of a good story exactly exactly <laughs> so how do you think he feels scampering north total failure, <laughs> right? total failure. well I mean yeah I mean, so he's I mean, in 1642, Charles is a bit disappointed at how many people actually come and support him. <laughs> and then he goes, to, he goes to York. He basically not that many people come and um, come and join his cause. And then he has this debacle where he tries to get into into Hull, um, which is where all the basically all the all the military stuff again military historians are going to be appalled by this um, you know guns and swords and all that kind of malarkey um, they're all in the hell after the Scottish War and Charles tries to get them and then he's told to bog off by the by the governor um, who's uh, who's been you imagine being Hull. turned away from Hull <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not my point in his career his career had a lot of low points Getting his head cut off was one of them. Being turned away from Hull was, was another. Um, but eventually he he makes the very sound decision to sort of start trundling around um, Lancashire, Cheshire. Um, you mean well, actual uh, loyalist areas as opposed exactly, to Yorkshire, yeah. which you're always yeah. kicking off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and the Welsh marches and all those kind of areas where he gets lots and lots of support. Um, so the, by the time it actually ends up in, in, in battle, um, he has a very very strong army, um, but again, I mean, you know, after the, after the Battle of Edge Hill, which is the first major battle of the Civil War, Charles is able to march to London, and yet again, he's told to piss off by by a load of Londoners um, because they they all come out. Well, they all they don't all come out. Lots and lots of them come out um, and block his pathway at Turnham Green on the district line. Um, and, um, <laughs> And uh, and Charles is not able to get to them. And it's one of those great sort of collective moments um, where all the London militia, who are all kind of fairly ordinary guys, basically come out and sort of stand in Charles's way or in the way of his 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 army. And all the London women kind of bring out picnics and everything for the soldiers and bring out ale for them. Um, and it's sort of great, you know, collective um, resistance to Charles. So once again, he's kind of been foiled by those pesky Londoners <laughs> getting in the way. I um, like that the fact that that uh, my I do not. 
I have a lot of respect for that branch of the district line, and I like that its uh, uselessness is actually provable as far back as the 17th century. It is yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, he's not the only person who's ever got stuck on the district line uh, on the in the district line. Not on right? Richmond yeah. bit. No way. <laughs> so why on earth did Charles think, you know, strategically speaking, that it would be a good idea to leave London? Um, I mean, I think he realised that he'd lost it. So it was it was almost a sort of um, a, a, a reflection of reality. Um, uh, but I think I think he 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 wanted to go um, go to the country, go to the rest of the country, and um, and raise the you know the the, the salt of the earth English folk against the metropolitan elite, um, <laughs> and <laughs> we were all terribly radical and annoying. Make London um, great again. Well, yeah. So, but I think he realised that a lot of his support was from the was from the the, the loyalist areas. Um, it is a bit surprising that he went to York first. I, I, you know, but in hindsight, he should have gone to Shropshire, um, which is one of those counties that we haven't insulted yet. Um, but <laughs> we haven't insulted yet. Um, but uh, we'll so he, get to them all. Don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get there eventually. But so he should have gone there first. But uh, but yeah, I, I think he thinks that he's got a lot more support in the rest of the country, which he does, um, although it's more split down the middle than you might imagine. Um, and I think he then thinks that he can get support from the um, from the rest of the country and then eventually come back and, and take London. Um, so it is, yeah, it is a sort of, you know, <laughs> he, he wants to fight back against the, against the metropolitan elite, I think, with their lattes. Um, <laughs> and their avocados. You yeah, yeah, visiting yeah. bastards. <laughs> Do you think money plays to recruit the Greg's Mafia? <laughs> oh, I love that. I was going to say, do you think money played any any part of that? Because I mean, York is it's not short of a bob or two. Maybe he thought that you know, the bishops of York might help him out a bit. Well, yes. I mean, he also gets lots of support from uh, all the kind of, well, not all of them, but lots of the aristocratic, aristocratic families, um, the universities as well. Particularly Oxford gives him a load of um, a load of money. They they melt down loads of their plate and then give it to him, which he turns into into coins. Um, so yeah, and, and he realizes that the, the the sort of big financial institutions of the city, um, so um, not just the sort of bankers, but also the uh, the East India Company as well. Um, he realizes that he's basically lost them, and they're not going to give him any money. Um, partly because they don't like him very much, but also partly because they're pretty canny and they realize that he'll probably just lose it um so um so yeah by so he in order to, in order to get support he needs he needs soldiers um and he needs cash um and he's pretty conscious that he's not going to get that from london so he he's um you know he, he's pretty sensible i think to to try and um try and try the rest try the rest of the country and uh, and see if they're a bit more supportive of him see if they'll respect his authority in the way that those 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 horrific londoners with their with their ideas about um you know um social equality and all that kind of thing um, are... wasabi <laughs> takeaway and all of that do you think that the attempted arrest of the five members made war inevitable or could Charles have done anything to smooth relations with Parliament? Uh, <laughs> it's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. <coughs> I, so I, I used to think that it was the Irish Rebellion that made war inevitable. Just make an answer up. No one of mine. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it was the aliens, actually. Um, it, it, what, what many of your listeners will not know is that uh, later in the year, aliens came down. No, I mean, I think, yeah. Yes, but that's basically how someone started a religion with Scientology and people bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and people 
started some very very strange religions in the 1640s as well um although i don't think any of them were to do with aliens um the um yeah i think probably it did uh i think you know one of the things that you need in a civil war is you need two sides who are basically kind of armed camps glaring at each other and you've kind of already got that in um in late 1641 at the very end because you've got the you've got parliament with their guard at um at westminster and then you've got the king with his cavaliers at whitehall so you've already got these kind of two armed um groups if you like um and uh, they're almost like you know they're sort of just yelling at each other down the street basically um but what happens when charles leaves london is that he's able to raise a, a bigger force and of course london does the same they have the earl of essex who's one of their leaders um he's kind of trotting around in a in a in a, in a rather sparkly coach um he's very flamboyant as the earl of essex for a, for an alleged puritan um and uh, and raising the london militia um and so you both you basically get two sides which are able to raise armies and you do call me a traditionalist <laughs> you kind of need two armies to fight a civil war um as i say i think it's one of those questions that you get to historians you'll get five different interpretations um but yeah i think i think it's a i think it's a fair one i think on this this afternoon at this time i will say yes if you ask me again tomorrow i might not but for now i'm gonna say yes <laughs> Well, we know we know what happened next. And this is all sort of leading up to the raising of the standard in the summer of 1642 now. Um, it's it's just incredible to see how how those decisions and how those those arguments and those back and forths actually escalated fairly quickly into a conflict. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a there's a bit of a tendency amongst some historians who I'm not going to name um, to see it as all a bit of a um, an, all a bit of an argument between between the, the members of the social elite. But in 1642, when you get these mass mobilizations of parliamentarians and, and, uh, and royalists, you're basically um, using a mass mobilization of really quite ordinary people to settle a question about religion and the constitution. Um, so it's a really kind of revolutionary moment, I think. And I, I, I think we shouldn't underplay that. It's not just about aristocrats and gentlemen um, arguing. It's about ordinary men and women as well who are making these decisions about which side to support, which side to fight for. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, and it, as I say, it's women as well as men. When, when London throws up its defences, um, in the early stages of the war, it's a massive effort by London um, Londoners, including uh, lots of London women, to just go get a spade and build these massive defences. All gone now, of course. Now, um, but it's a huge, huge collective effort. So, you know, what happens? It's not. It's not just this kind of this kind of tiff between factions within the aristocracy. Um, it really is a, a mass mobilisation about a really quite complicated dispute about politics and religion. Gosh. We will have to get you back on and do a, a proper myth busting. <laughs> all the kind of A-level myths that you learn about the Civil War and, and actually break <laughs> them apart. But at this particular podcast, John, we couldn't let you go today yeah. without asking your expert opinion on the recent findings at CERN Abbas, um, which for anybody who who hasn't heard of this he's the great big naked warrior carved into the hill down in dorset so what do you think is the link perhaps between one of our five members and a certain enormous member uh carved into a dorset hill because i know you love dorset i think you've been waiting the whole uh, the whole the whole time to yeah. 
come up with one yeah i like <laughs> you it. know his cat well <laughs> i'm i'm not i'm not gonna die i deny i do like it um yeah you might think that there's no connection but there allegedly is a connection which is that um denzel hollies one of the five members um was a bit of a big wig down in that part of, part of dorset um and uh, in his later life he fell out massively with cromwell um by the time cromwell became important in 1647 Hollis and uh, was very much on the sort of conservative side whereas Cromwell was more on the radical side and they fell out massively Cromwell Hollis eventually went into exile but then Cromwell actually let him back um, and there's always been a bit of a theory um, because the Cernabas giant doesn't appear in the records until I think it's 1694 so it's very very late there's always been a bit of a theory um, that uh, it's it, it's basically a big joke by Hollis because um, Cromwell liked to be some people like to pre- uh, portray Cromwell as Hercules um, and obviously as a Puritan one of the things you probably don't want as a Puritan is a is a massive chalk hill figure with a huge um, erection I mean I, 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 I'm no Puritan myself but I'm gonna say that that's probably not the kind of thing you. I think want. it's more hilarious and we have more of a case to argue for it if the knob was on his head um but unfortunately the 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 boffins at the national trust um have have done some extremely clever scientific analysis and they found that the cernabas giant is much older than that as far as they can tell uh it's uh it it states to the 11th century or or there or thereabouts um now i as i have to say as a 17th century historian i'm immensely disappointed by (laughs) i also really hope that it was just a load of drunk guys on their way home from the local alehouse (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm, so the one thing I'm going to cling to, though, um, is that we still do have this issue of that of this thing was allegedly, allegedly there for hundreds of years and no one noticed it until the 17th century. Um, and there's also a, apparently there's some suggestion that the original version of the giant really had a belt and was slightly more decent. <laughs> Uh, and shall we say and honestly if you don't know the picture if you don't know the i, I went there as a child um that sound very very weird um, but, um i'm surprised the victorians didn't come along and scratch well, yeah room, so. you imagine he should he should be in y fronts shouldn't he really yeah um, but anyway there's a theory that the um that the most striking element of the cernabas giant um was uh was put on later and what i'm clicking with the 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 story here's my story and i'm sticking to it um i'm sticking to it like a you know uh anyway um it, it's the, the the thing was uh, fine okay national trust you can have your fun fine sir nabas giant 10th century i'll give you that that's fine enjoy enjoy your enjoy your moment of victory um i'm, I'm sure you'll i'm sure you'll <laughs> be a better person for it it then got lost and then in the 17th century, it was discovered by someone connected with Denzel Hollis, who decided, this reminds me of Cromwell. <laughs> so I'm going to draw a huge phallus in the middle of it as a way of taking the piss out of Oliver Cromwell. So that's my story. I'm sticking with it. Um, I'm, I'm, it may well go against the science, but that's fine. Um, and, and hopefully we can keep at least part of the Cernabas giant. One might suggest the most important part for the 17th century, but who knows? <laughs> Oh, John, thank you so much for coming on um, to the. I hope you've enjoyed your visit to the only history podcast where it's okay to make as many knob jokes as you like um, <laughs> and swear with everyone as well. Thank you so much for coming on and making what a subject that usually makes me want to slip my wrist actually fun and exciting for the last hour. I've loved it. Hey, I told you. <laughs> still, still don't know what the fuck is going on with the shit money stuff. 
But yeah, I'm kind of halfway to understanding why now, but I still think he's an idiot for going to Yorkshire. In the only, oh, look, where's the only other place where you could have gone where they could have been more fighting? Oh, I'll go and visit Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Brilliant. My pleasure. It's been fantastic. And uh, I hope you've all enjoyed yourselves. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.